Okay, Genesis 49, 1 through 27. Uh, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is, the, it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall raise you. Your hand, <clears throat> your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding is a foal, sorry, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall, <clears throat> Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Isaacar is a strong donkey, crouching between the, shep- the sheepfolds. He saw that a, a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his, shoulders t- his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall, be, uh, D- Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall be, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, and fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessing of your Father and our, <clears throat> the blessing of your Father and our mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who has set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, as your word says, this is the day that you have made. Lord, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we rejoice and are glad because you have given us your son, Jesus. That he has come, he has lived, he has died, he has rose again so that we might be saved. And for those of us that repent of our sin and trust in him, Lord, we will be saved and we will taste of the bounty and the blessing of him at his second coming at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, but there's work to be done. So I'm thankful for Chris and Lissa and their passion to, uh, to come and, 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 and walk by faith to, to move their family up from South Denver and to, to now be an ambassador for you on the CSU campus. And I pray that you would give him an extra measure of grace and an extra measure of fair, favor in his ministry. That as he is meeting with these athletes, both the men and the women, that, the, that you would have a mini revival that happens throughout CSU's athletic facility. Lord, we know that will come by you sending your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray for that. 
We also pray for everyone in here because we are all ambassadors of Christ. Whether we are paid ministers or whether we are, are people working in, a, in, a, in, a, in car insurance or as an artist or at Otterbox or wherever we may work, Lord. That wherever we live, wherever we work and wherever we play, whoever we come in contact with, that we carry the banner of Jesus. To carry the banner of his message, the gospel. And ultimately carry the motive of his heart and that is love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guy, guys have a seat. Uh, again, as I said, we are finishing up the next couple weeks of the book of Genesis. It's been a wonderful, wonderful study. We've seen a lot of firsts. And really, I think if we were to categorize, categorize the book, it would be that it's a, it's a book of grace. It is a book of grace. As I was studying this passage, I heard a, a great funny story to kind of open up uh, this message. Um, three men, their, their wives were, were in labor, so the three men were at the hospital. They were in the waiting room, and so they weren't with their wives. They were in the waiting room, and um, the first nurse came out, and the first nurse came out to uh, and asked for Rita's husband. And um, Rita's husband uh, said, hey, this is me. I'm Rita's husband. The nurse said, man, congratulations. Uh, your wife gave birth to twins. And he was just like, man, twins. He was overjoyed. And they said, man, that's, that's kind of interesting. And the nurse said, well, why is that? He goes, well, I, I play shortstop for the Minnesota Twins, right? And now I have twins. And it's like, well, okay, that's kind of interesting. Then another nurse came out and um, asked for Jennifer's husband. And Eric said, oh, yeah, here, here, here I am. I'm right here. And he says, well, congratulations. Your wife just gave birth to triplets. And he's like, triplets, awesome, just overjoyed, triplets. And he says, man, I mean, that's also kind of strange. I work for the company 3M, and now I have three kids. And immediately, the next, the third guy just falls on the floor, and he starts rolling around and groaning and praying. And the nurse is like, whoa, dude, are you okay? And he's like, I don't know yet. I work for 7-Up. <laughs> so... We know that scripture says that children are a blessing and a heritage of the Lord. And today we are looking at that heritage left by Jacob's family. And in particular, his 12 sons, his 12 blessings. But if you remember, he actually has 13 children. Do you remember the, 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 the other child's name? It's a female. No, Dinah, Dinah. Dinah. So he has Dinah and then the, the 12 boys. But here he's addressing the 12 men. Now, can you imagine having 13 children? I mean, we have five and around the dinner table gets crazy, but 13 would be just awesome. Um, <laughs> so speak for myself, I guess. I don't know. I know. I know you guys love kids. Anyways, but Genesis 29, uh, 49 is actually an incredibly important verse for us uh, today. It's a chapter that not only impacts the future of these 12 sons, these 12 tribes in the near future that we know as the tro- uh, that becomes Israel, but really it's, it's for you and me today in our, in our future blessing and future hope. It speaks to that. It speaks for us to look forward to the future. Jacob's blessings and maybe some cursings here to his sons, uh, again, actually impact the whole world. And it points us again to that, to that character that when we began Genesis, back in Genesis 3, uh, and back in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 16, that, that new Messiah, that new Savior that was going to come when Adam and Eve uh, sinned, this, this serpent crusher. Well, here we're starting to get more clarity on who that serpent crusher is. 
And we know that ultimately, because we know the whole of the New Testament, that serpent crusher is Jesus Christ. And when this is this this portion actually is going to point us to his second coming. Well, he will come back a second time as the conquering king to rule over this world. And we'll see that all the peoples of the nation will bow down and worship him. will worship Jesus as the one true God. So this is very important for us this morning, even though it was written thousands of years ago with a people or a, or a family tree that doesn't necessarily belong to us. So let's look at that. First in verse 1, we see blessings and cursings towards a future hope. It says this, Then Jacob called his sons, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So we know the story as you guys have been coming and we've been tracking through Genesis. Uh, Jacob is on his deathbed now. He's 147 years old. His, his life is short. He knows he's about to die. So therefore, he summons his sons. He, he summons his sons to give them blessings and cursings and actually pronounces a public blessing of the future on all of his sons. You can, you can almost, you can put yourself there, there. Jacob's laying down and these 12 men are surrounding him as Jacob is sharing this. Last week, Rich looked at Genesis 48 and we looked at the, the private blessing, the private adoption of Joseph and his son Manasseh and Ephraim. And here it's now public. This is for the whole world to see. This is what's going to happen in the future, Jacob is going to say to his sons. This is the legacy that each of you are going to leave. You who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we look at it, we see that this form is a little bit different. It's not in narrative form like most of the book of Genesis. It's actually in a, in poetic form. So this is a poem. So there's stuff in here that is, is metaphor, is, is poetic language, and it's tough to figure out exactly what Jacob is saying. But there's also stuff in here that's very clear. And so we'll be clear on the things that are clear, and with the things that are, you know, where all the commentators debate, we'll, we'll just let them debate. So this morning, again, we're looking, we're going to have a 12-point sermon, going Puritan on you guys this morning, 12-point sermon. So buckle up, right? Uh, each son will be a point. But know this, even though Jacob is 147 years old, even though he's on his deathbed and has, and breathing his last, and, and he's old and he can barely see, his mind is still very sharp and clear. And he begins with this firstborn, Reuben. So let's look at Reuben. Verses 3 and 4. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. How do you think Reuben's feeling right about now, right? You, you, can, you can just see him. He's like, yeah, mm, thank you. Like, humble, like, mm. But also in his mind, he's like, listen up, boys, you know, listen up, bros. Uh, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be the preeminent one. I'm the firstborn. Yes, yes, preach it, dad, preach it. And then, as Lee Corso says, not so fast, my friend. He says, you will be unstable as water. <laughs> That's pretty unstable, right? As water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What is he talking about there? He's, Jacob is recounting a story 40 years ago, roughly. 40 years ago that his son Reuben, when his favorite wife, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, died. His father was devastated. He was mourning. And what did Reuben do? Did he come and get around and console his father? No. What he did is he took his Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, and he had sexual relationships with her. And that's why he says you're as unstable as water. When I needed you to, to, when I needed your support, you went off and you did something very, very sinful. He says you're untrustworthy. That's what it means, unstable as water. You're not trustworthy. I can't trust you. And so then he says, 
there would be no blessing for you, no first blessing for you. And as we look at the rest of history for Reuben, Reuben's legacy is not of that of preeminence, but it's that of, of failure. It's that of rebellion. Um, one situation uh, in Numbers chapter 16, it's, the, it's Korah's rebellion. If some of you guys know that story, uh, Korah and, and others, Reuben's tribe was uh, not very happy with Moses, and so they rebelled against the Lord. And, and that's what he's been known for, uh, his tribe is known for. And so we see all of a sudden, Reuben is not getting the, the blessing of the firstborn. So now the question is, well, who's going to get it? And we go to our second and third sons, Simeon and Levi. Now all of a sudden, after they hear the first blessing and curse of Reuben, the sons were eager. They can probably be like, ooh, ooh maybe now I should just, just not be so eager to hear. And then verse 49, 5, we hear Simeon and Levi are this. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence, are their swords. Let my soul not come to their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. I mean, they get no love, right? They just get straight up scolded by Jacob. And he, t- and he tells us why. He goes on. He says, for in their anger, they killed men. And in their willingness, they hum- hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, for their wrath, for it is cruel. What's he, what's he talking about there? He's, he's, he's talking about that situation in Genesis chapter 4 when his daughter Dinah was raped. As you guys recall, these two brothers took judgment and justice into their own hands. Uh, the men of Shechem, they came up with this diabolical plan with the men of Shechem. He said, um, yeah, you want to you marry Dinah to the, to the prince there? They said, sure, but all the men first must get circumcised. Every single one of them in Shechem must get circumcised. And as they were, got, all the men got circumcised. A couple of days into it, both Simeon and Levi went and killed all the men. Just absolute genocide. And it wasn't that Jacob was knocking justice for Dinah. It's just that the justice that they exacted went way beyond the crime. The one who should have got punished was the prince, was the perpetrator, not the whole of Shechem. They wiped out the whole men of, the whole men of Shechem. And so what we see here is this is why this judgment comes down. Jacob can't trust them because of their anger, because of their wrath, because of their violent tendencies. So they aren't going to get the first blessing. We see that they are scattered in Israel. In fact, Levi gets no land whatsoever. He's not part of the 12 tribes. We actually have a map up there that you guys can kind of follow along. We'll keep up there. Uh, the 12 tribes, if you look up there, you don't see Levi. You see Simeon down there, but we know just pretty much after the conquest in the book of um, 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 oh, geez. Joshua, after the conquest, um, Simeon's, Simeon's tribe just kind of disperses and you don't really hear much of them. But Levi, something really interesting happens to Levi. And it's really God's grace. As we, as we fast forward in the scripture, we see that the Lord takes one of the most sinful tribes of Israel. Again, violent, cruel, um, angry. And what does he do with them? He makes them their spiritual leaders. He makes them a kingdom of priests. That is incredibly crazy to think about. These ruthless, this ruthless tribe that's bent toward violence and anger and murder. The grace of God rushes in and he now has them being the spiritual and the moral leaders of the nation of Israel. It's an incredible testimony. It's an incredible testimony of God's grace in the tribe of Levi. Now, Levi still doesn't get any land. It's up to all the other 11 tribes to now provide for Levi as they provide the leadership spiritually and morally. 
In fact, we see after the golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32, Moses asks this question. After he destroys the golden calf, etc., he says, who among you? He looks at the tribes of Israel and he says, who among you is on the Lord's side? Who among you is on the Lord's side? Who's going to follow the Lord and not go after his own devise of these idols? And the first people to step up is the tribe of Levi. They said, we will follow you. We will respond and gather around Moses and gather around the Lord God. And we see in a couple chapters as the covenant is renewed, they are there leading the way. So this is an incredible testimony of the Lord's grace in this wicked tribe. The grace of God in the Old Testament. Now this also carries over to us this morning. Because in 1 Peter, Peter says this, that the the Lord is, is still doing that today. And in fact, he's done that with many of you in here. For you and me, those who repent of Christ and trust in him, he's taken rebellious sinners, the most vile of people, and he's made us a kingdom of priests. He's made us a holy nation. We're going to actually go through First Peter starting in January. That's going to be the next book that we're going to go through in January. But think about that. The grace of God that was shown to this tribe of Levi is also shown to you and me this morning. Now, if you guys are culturally relevant, which I know you guys are, keeping up with your Facebook page, your Twitter page, your Snapchat, etc., you will know there has been, over the last several months, an incredible testimony of a, of a person you would have never guessed come to Christ. In fact, you would say, if I, when I say this word, this will be a guy that's like, that's the chief of sinners. Like when you see sin, rebellious, selfish, prideful, womanizer, partier, drunkard, you would see this guy's face. And yet, we've seen the grace of God, it seems, grab a hold of his heart, where he's repented of his sin, and he's trusting with Christ, and he's given his life over to the Lord now fully. Who am I talking about? Kanye West. Kanye West. It's an incredible testimony of God's grace to grab a heart of a Levite, to grab a heart of you and me, to grab a heart of Kanye West and and just lavish him with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Can a tribe like Levi get saved that commits genocide? Absolutely. Can Kanye West get saved? Absolutely. Can you and me get saved? Absolutely. Why? Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is only possible because of the grace of God. Well, that's the tribe of Simeon and Levi. Next we come to Judah, but we're going to actually save him till the last because he is actually the pinnacle of this. And so fourthly, we're going to go to Zebulun. Zebulun. We're actually going to go through the next seven guys really, really quick because there's not really a whole lot here as far as, as lines and verses. But Zebulun, it says this in verse 13. He gets a short, he gets a short and sweet blessing of being this prosperous tribe because they will be near the sea. Um, the borders actually, as you see here, it's kind of up in the Asher Naphtali. Then you see Zebulun there. It's not on the border, but that little, that little nook is about 10 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And they become actually a great place of trade um, when it comes to the, the, the port city. And so this is where a lot of business in, uh, is done in the city of Zebulun. Moses confirms this in Deuteronomy 33. But also, there's also a thinking that in, in actually the new kingdom, when Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom, in the future kingdom, Zebulun, Actually, will, his borders will actually do, will reach up to this place called Sidon, which is kind of north up there. You can see it all the way up there with Asher. And they say in the New Kingdom that it seems like 
his uh, kingdom, Zebulun, will actually reach up there. So that's Zebulun. And actually, we see there's no, there's no curse here. It's just straight blessing. This, this guy's going to be prosperous. And then we go to Issachar in verses 14 and 15. And you got to love Issachar. You know, he says, my son, you're going to be a strong donkey, right? You'd be like, Thanks, dad. You know, strong donkey, right? Man, that's a reassuring words. But actually, those are, those are words of encouragement. Those are actually are words of blessing. Uh, the donkey, in the most part, in Scripture, is, is, the beast, is the beast that is a hard worker, that is reliable, uh, that isn't like a horse that can sometimes have its own mind, but it's, it's a steady. It's, it gets the job done. And so he says you're going to be strong as donkeys. It's just their ability to work and work hard. And because of their work ethic, as we see in Israel's history, most of their lives, you see that they're pleasant and it's a resting place. They actually get to reap what they sow. Usually when you put in hard work, you get, you get blessing and you get peace of mind. And this is what happens to them. Now, there also might be a, a negative connotation there where some believe that the downfall is that they will only work for others. They don't necessarily own their own businesses or stuff, but they're always in, in, in work and service for others. But again, that's Issachar. And then we come to Dan, and Dan, we have a little bit of play on words, because Dan in the original language means judge. So it says, Dan shall judge his people. And so judge shall judge his people. And so we see that's what the, the, the tribe of Dan was. They were, they were kind of the judges of Israel. This, this snake-like behavior might refer to Judges chapter 18, um, where they assaulted unsuspectingly these inhabitants of Elisha. And we see that in Judges 18. Not really sure exactly what they're, they're talking about that, but most commentators feel that that's what they're pointing to. They're just cunning um, in this situation. But when you think of the book of Judges, and we've gone through the book of Judges, I think, a couple years ago here at the crossing, who was the most famous judge that you think of in the book of Judges? Who's the most famous judge? Samson, boom, Samson. Yeah, Samson was a Danite. And he was probably the most famous judge uh, out of all the, the judges. And, and what he was known for is obviously his strength, but also his appetite for other things as well. But, but he saved the, the tribe and the nation of Israel uh, single-handedly from the Philistines. Um, but as you know, his hair got cut and he got taken away and enslaved. But it says that in Genesis 49, 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Some commentators think it was the time when he was in prison, he was chained up between those two pillars. His eyes were gouged out. And at the right time, all of the, the wealthy and the leaders of the nation of uh, Philistine came and he destroyed them. And because of that, Israel was saved from their rule and reign. So that's the tribe of Dan. That's a little history there, these future blessings. And then we see Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Benjamin. Benjamin gets a little bit more, but the other guys just get three verses, three quick verses, and they're all pretty much blessings. It says in verse 19 that Gad um, becomes known as a great warrior, basically. And he becomes a great warrior because they are constantly being raided. You see kind of where they're at, kind of towards their east. There's, there's no really... Nothing but Ammon and, and, and the Gentiles. So they're, they're constantly be getting attacked. So because they can, the enemies can kind of, if they can get through Gad, they kind of have the middle and they can go north, south, east, west. And so Gad's kind of like the open door. And the, so they've been known as great warriors. Um, and then Asher. Asher's interesting. If you're thinking about Asher, you see that it's up, up in, kind of in the north. Um, it's kind of the Midwest of America. Not, not, not by location, but what Asher is known for is their, their ability to farm is their land is, is rich to, to farm. And you see that it says they, they create the most rich and delicate, uh, delicious delicacies. 
Um, I haven't been to Israel, but note this, maybe in a couple years, the crossing, we might be putting together a trip to Israel. But those that have been to Israel, um, a lot say that Asher is, is probably the most beautiful place in all of Israel. Just that the land is just really, really, really beautiful uh, and, and, and rich. And so that's Asher. Again, a huge blessing. And then you have Naft- Naphtali or Naphtali. It's a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. This is just language that describes that these people are just a blessing. They're fruitful. They're bountiful. Exactly in what? We're not sure. It's just that they're a blessing. We know uh, in the song of, of Deborah in Judges that she speaks of, of Naphtali and also Zebulun for their bravery in battle. So this could mean a whole number of things of what they are fruitful and, 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 and flourishing in. And then we're going to skip all the way to Benjamin. Benjamin in verse 27. Uh, it says, is a, is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and in the evening dividing the spoils. Now, at first we, we think there's a negative commentation, but this might not be negative. This also might have a positive blessing in the sense that the Benjamin, they will become great warriors in Scripture. Their future blessing, they will become great warriors. Um, you think of Judges in chapter 20 and 21. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, in, earlier in Judges, um, you have this left-handed Benjamite named Ehud. You guys remember Ehud? He was the left-handed guy that just was a skillful warrior and just just reigned supreme back then. And then you have a guy named King Saul. You guys remember who King Saul was? He was a king before King David. He was a Benjamite. Then he gave birth to Jonathan. And these were these were great men. These were men that that, that won battles, were skillful warriors. And so positively, we think that that could be a blessing. But there's also a negative connotation to Benjamin. As you guys recall, when we went through the book of Judges and, and probably some of the most brutal chapters in all the scripture in Judges 21, uh, 20 through 21, uh, even it even says it's the lowest part of Israel's history. Well, the tribe of Benjamin was at the heart of it. Let me just quickly remind you of not going into the gory details, but you remember there was this Levite that was traveling and he had a concubine. He was traveling through the land of Benjamin and the man of Benjamin wanted to, to, to basically molest the Levite, but he got into a place and he said no and they sent out this concubine and they, they just... They just, you know, did bad things, raped her to the point of death. And then we know that she was chopped up and her body parts were sent to the other 11 tribes of Israel. This is what Benjamin did. And what happened is the all Israel rallied around to go to war with Benjamin because they were unrepentant and they basically almost wiped them out, except for 600 men. There's more to that story. But that's the negative connotation, that they are ravenous wolves devouring the prey and the evening dividing their spoils. So, that, so that's the, the first ten sons. Now, I'm not going to go a lot into what that means for us, but there might be something here. And what that might be is we look at these, I mean, you might be able to sum up these blessings and these cursings with these, these, these sons reaped what they sow. We know that's a principle in the New Testament. But in sometimes, in some instances, the Lord will rush in and give us grace. And we see that with Levi. We see that with Asher. We see that with Naphtali. We'll see that with Joseph. And we see that in Judah because they were all part of throwing, beating up their son, their brother Joseph, and throwing him in the pit. But the Lord chose to give them blessing. He chose to give them grace. And we see that this could be maybe the principle here also in the New Testament. We know this principle of reaping and sowing. In Genesis chapter 6, this is what it says in verse 7. It says this, 
Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whoever one, for whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh from flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, so then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those of the household of faith. There could be many principles that we pour out from this chapter and seeing all these blessings and cursings, but that just might be one. So as you look at your life, just see, what are you sowing? What, are you, what is your life doing for those around you? Are you sowing to the flesh or are you sowing to the spirit? Are you being an ambassador for Christ or are you being an ambassador for the world? And such, God would be just to repay you as he will. But also we know that if we were in Christ, we've already tasted of the good and the graciousness of God. And so we get to reap eternal life. And that's, again, just the grace of God that we can see and pull from those blessings and cursings. Now we go on. We save Joseph and Judah for last for the reason, because 10 out of 27 verses are to them. So over a third of this chapter is dedicated to these two men. First, Joseph. We see this in verse 22 and 26. And who gets the blessing? Joseph gets the blessing of the firstborn. So, so Jacob passes through 10 kids. And then when he gets to Joseph, he's the one that gets the double portion. He's the one that gets the preeminent blessing. The theme that dominates these verses is just that. It's fruitfulness. It's blessing. As you read through it and you look over, you see fruitfulness. You see blessing. You see abundance. You see flowing over. You see God will help you and the Almighty will bless you. We even see he gets a double portion of the land. Now, we don't look up here. We don't see the, the, the place, the, the, the land of Joseph. Why? Because Rich talked about this last week. His land is given to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And we see that he gets the double portion. The biggest portion of land comes under Ephraim and Manasseh, again, represented by the tribe of Joseph. Verse 22 says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. That word bough means branch or vine. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. This is a picture of a healthy, abundant, fruitful vine just growing everywhere. It's so healthy that it grows over the wall. Now we all maybe have seen or maybe in our, even our own backyards have vines that are, that are wild, that are, that are fruitful. That they just grow and grow and grow. If not marriage, they will take over the whole yard, the whole fence, the whole thing that it is grabbing onto. This is what this is a picture of. Joseph is a fruitful bough. It's just continually blessed all over everything he touches. And even in the times of severe trial, verse 23, it says this. As the archers bitterly attack him, shots at him and harass him severely, his bow remained unmoved because the Lord was with him and strengthening him. This, this idea of these archers bitterly attacking him are the words and action probably of his brothers. How they talked harshly to them. How they hated him. How they threw him in the pit. Probably talking about uh, Potiphar's wife who accused him falsely of raping her. Talking about the, the cupbearer in prison. Oh sure, Joseph, I'll remember you when I get out. In all these deep and dark times of Joseph's life, he stood firm. Why? Because the Lord was strengthening him. When I was reading these verses, I was immediately reminded of Psalm chapter 1. It says this in Psalm chapter 1, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. The leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now the image is different, but the meaning is the same. 
And what's this? Now, a vine that's planted next to a well or a tree that's planted next to a river. A tree or a vine that's planted and connected to the water source, river or well, will flourish. That's just how it works in nature. And Joseph flourished because he was connected to the one and only source that could sustain him in his life as he was a slave in Egypt. And that was the Lord God. We see in verses 24 and 25, these divine titles that strengthen Joseph's arm, that he was strengthened by the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and the Almighty. This is what sustained Joseph in the times when the archers were coming against him. And what's, what's good to note here is when Joseph was in Egypt, he was all by himself with regards to his faith. He, he had no brothers and sisters in the faith there to encourage him like we do. He had no community. He was all alone in the midst of all these pagans. And yet, we see that even though he was all alone, even though he was isolated, as we look at his life, we can say there's no one exemplified faith and obedience more than Joseph. He didn't falter. He didn't fall away. He stood true to his Lord. Why? Because he, drinkly, because he deeply drank from the well of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He deeply drank from God, his Father. That's what sustained him. Not only did it sustain him in that time when he was in Egypt, but then also will continue to sustain him as he looks throughout his life moving forward. We see these future blessings in verses 25 and 26. His, his life spiritually was, was blessed with the blessings of heaven above. With regard to his family, Ephraim and Manasseh, again, they were blessed as you go throughout the, the rest of Scripture. Blessing from the breasts and the womb. His family was blessed and then of wealth beyond the blessings of his parents. So we see that because Joseph was so grafted into the, 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 the branch, the vine, that he prospered. Joseph gets the double portion, the double blessing, because he is connected to God. As we fast forward the New Testament, Jesus puts it this way, to have a life of blessing, to have a fruitful life. If we want to have a fruitful life, a life that is blessed, we will and must be connected to the vine. John 15, you are the vine, I am the vine, you are the bough, the branches. Whoever abides in this, in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Or if you want to use and go off the water analogy in John chapter 7, uh, if you're thirsty, you come to me and drink. And what happens? If you believe in me, that you're, then your heart will be filled with the, the, the flow of rivers of living water. So whether you're connected to the vine or you're drinking from the living water that Christ offers you, that is where the blessing is. To sustain you through those times of trial, but also then to propel you forward in blessing. I mean, again, really, this answers the question for all of us this morning of how could Joseph get through the things that he got through when he was in the valley, when he was in the pit, when he was in prison. How could he get it through? He got through because he was connected to the vine. He got through because he drank in the fountain of living water. And that is the same for us today. The same for us today. So we see that Joseph gets the double blessing. And then finally we come to Judah. Judah, we see in verses 8 through 12. Again, we have another play on words here because Judah means praise. So Judah, your brothers shall praise you, or praise your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. 
Now, here's the thing. When Joseph was alive, he was the preeminent one, right? Even around, again, remember, all these 12 brothers are around their, their father, David, and Joseph sticks out. Why? Because he's in the prime minister gear, right? He's a prince of Egypt, so he just looks good, right? And so while Joseph was alive, he was the leader. He was the preeminent one of Israel. But when Joseph died, the focus shifted. The focus shifted from Joseph to now the tribe of Judah, Judah's tribe is the one that became preeminent. Judah's tribe is the one that became central to the theme of the rest of Scripture, central to the theme of redemption. And ultimately, in the end, the consummation of this world, all the father's sons shall bow down before you. And this is what we see. This is, and this is crazy thought, right? Because we all, we, we, we've seen Judah. We've seen how messed up this guy was. I mean, he was a grade A sinner as well. He was the one that suggested when they took Joseph to, to not, not kill him, but let's make some money off him. Let's sell him into slavery. That was Judah's idea. He was the one that had sex with his daughter-in-law who he thought was a prostitute. Remember that? But when he got confronted with his sin, we, again, we see the grace of God flood into Judah's heart. The grace of God invades his life. When he got confronted with this stuff, he repented. He didn't make excuses. He saw his sin. And he repented. And then all of a sudden we see Judah go from this, this kind of brutal, self-centered person now becoming this leader of the tribe. He is the one that steps up with all the interactions with Joseph, as we saw when his brothers were going back and forth because of the famine in the land. He was the one that stepped up in a number of areas, but none more important when he gave and he said, I want to give my life as a sacrifice for Benjamin. I'll take on his punishment. And so as we look at Judah and the grace of God invading his life, really he's the hidden hero of Genesis, Judah. And he will remain that, his tribe will remain that throughout the rest of Scripture. They become, he becomes, his family lineage becomes front and center. In verses 9 and 12, we have, I, I believe, a future prophecy regarding Jesus at his second coming. At his second coming. In verse 9, we read this, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares arouse him? We know as we look through and study through uh, Scripture, the symbol of Judah will be the lion. That will be his, his marker, the lion. And we see this here. It's in the, it's in the beginning of the first book of Genesis. He's, he's, he's talked about as a lion. But then when we jump to the last book in Revelation 5, we see this phrase again, the lion referring to Judah. We know in Revelation 5, the apostle John is in on Patmos. He's on an island. He's by himself, and he has a vision of what the end times, of what's going to happen in the end. And, and he sees this scroll, and the scroll representing the script of, of, of humanity and human history, and no one can open it. No one can touch it. And all of a sudden, he has this revelation in Revelation 5, 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seals. So we have the first book giving this illustration or the symbol of, 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 of Judah's tribe being a lion to the last book and the, the second coming of Christ. 
And so this is what we see. We see throughout Scripture, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, we track the genealogies and the genealogies from Judah. The reason why the genealogies are there are so that we can find out who this serpent crusher is. And we see that the serpent crusher that was promised in Genesis 3.15, that's talked about here in Genesis 49, is actually to David. All the lineage leads to him. Judah leads to David. David leads to Joseph. Joseph leads to Jesus. And here in the end, John seeing the vision, he sees the Lion of Judah opening the seal. With that thought in mind, now we go read Genesis chapter 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. That little phrase, until tribute comes, there's some actually some interesting prophecies that might refer to Jesus when he first comes to the earth, and I believe it does, but I want to focus on that second half. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. That's plural for a reason, so keep that in mind. But again, the scepter is the symbol of authority. We, we know that, right? When we see kings, and again, you watch those stories of, of England and France and some of the history of those channels. The kings, when they get um, ordained or inaugurated, they have a scepter, right? Because why? That's the, that's the symbol of rule. That's the symbol of authority, and that's what it is here. It's the same thing. It's the, the symbol of the king who rules in, over all. Now, with that in mind, that scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's given to Judah. It will continue to go through the line of Judah until you get to Revelation chapter 19. And here again, we have Jesus coming as the conquering king. And notice what's in his hand. Revelation 19, this great scene. From the mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod or a royal scepter of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the flurry of the wrath of God, the Almighty, mighty on his robe, on his thigh is the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when we think about Jesus being called the, the Lion of Judah, when we think about here, he's going to rule from the scepter. When we put these two scriptures together in Genesis and look at them in their combination in Revelation, we see they're ultimately pointing us to an event. The event that Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, is coming back as the conquering king. And so that's why I say this prophecy, these, these blessings in Genesis 49 are a prophecy not only for, for Judah and the nation Israel, but also for us this morning. That we, as I mean, think about it, Judah's listening to these blessings. He's listening to these things come to pass, and, and he doesn't know exactly what, what is going to come to pass. But it, but it gives him an anticipation and a hope to look forward to the future. And we are in that same spot as Judah. But we have a little bit more clarity because we have God's written word. We know who the, the, the lion is going to be. We know who the king is going to be that's going to carry that scepter. It's going to be Jesus. That's who we're looking for. And we're anticipating his coming because he hasn't come as the conquering king yet. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came as what? The lamb, the suffering servant the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the first, first way he came. The second time he's going to come, which is still future, that's what we are longing for. He's going to come as the Lion of Judah, the conquering king, to rule and to reign over this world. And thank goodness that's the way he decided to do it. Because what would have happened if he decided not to come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? But what would happen if he came first as the conquering king? We would all be without any hope. We'd all be toast because we are all in rebellion. 
And so thank the Lord that at first he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but also thank you that we're going to look for him the second coming because he is going to come as the conquering king and we will be under his rule and reign. And when we're under his rule and reign with no sin, no suffering, it will be nothing but fruitful blessing, everlasting joy. That's what we are looking forward to. Judah was looking forward to this with hope, but he didn't understand it. We have a more clear understanding because we have Scripture. Again, so when Judah sees this blessing, it causes him to look forward with anticipation and hope, and it should do the same for us this morning. It should do the same for us this morning. As you guys walk through these doors, how many of you guys were thinking about the second coming of Jesus? No. But as you leave these doors, how many of you guys are going to be start thinking about the second coming of Jesus? It's going to be on your mind. Well, let me just dive down a little bit further into that. Again, I believe it's the second coming, this promise of the second coming, because again, that phrase, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice right in the, in the, in the original context, in this blessing, it's to the nation Israel. It's not to the peoples. It's, it's very focused. It's very streamlined. It's to his 12 sons who make up Jewish people. And here, this word is plural to the obedience of the people. So not only to the Jews will bow and obey this king, be ruled by under this scepter, but all the Gentiles, that's you and me, those who aren't Jewish. We will be the beneficiaries of this gracious king and live and enjoy his bountiful blessings. And that's what verses 11 and 12 are, these, these poetic ways of talking about these abundant blessings. So again, when you came in here, you probably weren't thinking about the coming second coming of Christ. But when you leave, hopefully you will. Hopefully you'll start to reorient your mind on this event. Because this is what Jacob wanted Judah to, to wrap his mind around. And then we need to wrap, this, wrap our mind around this as well. So what do you think about when you think what's in store when Christ comes back? That's, that's the question that you should ask yourself. Do you think about what's in store when Christ comes back? Do you think about heaven? Do you think about that time that he's going to come back as a conquering king and get rid of sin, get rid of Satan, get rid of the enemy and set up his kingdom here on earth? Do you think about that? I love that the Danish Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this. He said that life is to be lived forward and understood backwards. That kind of sums up what we're talking about here. In other words, do you take the time to regularly step back and assess where you've come from, what the Lord has done in your life, how he has blessed you, how he has protected you, how in those times of deep valleys has he brought you out on the other side and you might seen blessing. And as you see the Lord's faithfulness in your life, as you look backwards, even though there were struggles, it gives us the hope to live forward, to live for the future, because we understand and know that Christ is in control and he will work out all things to our good. Life is to be lived forward and understood backwards. You know, when we th- in our family, as you guys know, uh, my son got engaged to Brooke, and there's a, there's a wedding coming up, right? It's in the future, July 11th, wedding date. And as we are looking forward to that, what are we doing it? What, 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 what is that causing that to happen in our life? We are reorienting our lives around that future event in our family. There's plans. There's things that have to be done. And so that future event is now orchestrating the direction of our lives to make that event possible, which we're, we're looking forward to. 
Well, there's, there's another marriage event that's coming in the future that is so much more important than JT and Brooks, as important as that is, and we're going to celebrate that. It's the marriage of Jesus and his church. It's, 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 it's when Jesus comes back as the conquering king, and we're sitting then at the, the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19, and we see this abundance of blessing and this celebration of joy because the, the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who's going to rule and reign over us has come. And we are now in his presence. And we are now living under his authority, which is ultimate blessing and joy. This is what this is pointing to and how it should impact, impact our lives as we walk out our doors. That we live and we orient our lives now with that future event in mind. That Jesus is coming back as the conquering king as a lion of the tribe of Judah, to rule and reign. And as we think and meditate on that, it should reorient our lives on how we live here and now. It should inform us. The life to be lived forward is understood backwards. Well, again, we see that Jacob dies in verses 28 through 33. He'll be buried with his family in Canaan. But I just want to end this sermon with the last words of Jesus. Because Jesus also had some last words as he was hanging on the cross before he died. And in particular, his last words to two two thieves. As we know that Christ was crucified between two thieves. One mocked him, the others believed in who Jesus was. The one who believed in who Jesus was says, Jesus, remember me. And what were Jesus' last words to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's ultimately as we look is that we want to be in paradise with the king. We want to be in paradise with Jesus. We want to be in paradise and under the rule of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because that is what life is about. That's where fullness of blessing and joy will be. So ask yourself this morning, are you in his kingdom? Have you been one who has subjected your life to the king, to the lion of the tribe of Judah, whose name is Jesus? Because he's coming back. And if you haven't, today is the day that we say is the day to, to recognize your sin, like a Judah, like a Levi, like a Kanye West, to recognize your rebellion against Jesus, the one true king, to repent of your sins and trust what he has done for you. He has died on the cross to make payment for your sin. He has rose again to give you eternal life. And if you embrace that, that second coming, you won't taste the wrath of God, but you'll taste the blessing of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture that is to these 12 men, 12 Jewish men that we have no relationship to physically. And yet we see that we know that your word says that by faith, those are the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, those that trust in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you for your revelation that that you have shown us who the serpent crusher is. The serpent crusher is the lion who comes from the tribe of Judah. The serpent crusher is the one who carries the scepter to rule and reign. And revelation gives us a clear picture of who that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Lord, may everyone in here, as we walk out those doors, reorient our lives with the second coming in mind. With that great event in which we will be a part of, we will get to enjoy the blessing of being under the rule and reign of King Jesus. And may we orchestrate our lives now for that end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.